and a hearty welcome to one and all back in the car on a nice long drive and this is episode 66 wow of the confessions of a not so dangerous mind podcast i'd like to thank you all for joining me for my ride home although i'm sure you'll be checking this out later if you're checking out episode 66 on the youtube channel you're enjoying the content of course haven't clicked like and subscribe as of yet please do so don't forget to turn on those notifications or if you are perhaps in the car listening to episode 66 on the audio platforms such as spotify itunes amazon music google podcast uh, google podcast excuse me or iHeartRadio, and you enjoy the content don't forget to click like subscribe and turn on those notifications so the last podcast i mentioned um that I had focused a lot on horror films, the horror genre, when I was at uh, New York University Film School. And another genre I focused on an awful lot, as these things go, westerns. Now, I happen to be a big fan of westerns in general. I like the form. I always did. Um, I like how the best films in the genre can set the time period and set the place And some of my favorite movies are westerns. And when I say favorite movies, I mean a sort of unofficial favorite. I don't actually... I could name a top ten, but to be honest, a top ten, you know, Jeremy's favorite ten movies of all time, you're not going to get the same answer two days in a row because there are so many movies that I absolutely adore. There are three or four that will absolutely be on every top ten list. First, you know, first movies I think of. But then there are others that on certain days I might name this, and on other days I might name that. And then you get into genre, like westerns. So when I say favorite movies, I don't know that I'm thinking in terms of a number, top 10, top 25, top 50, top 100. I don't know. But there are many westerns which I count among my favorite movies without giving it a numerical ranking system. And... One thing that I've always enjoyed about the genre is that many of the greatest filmmakers took a crack at the genre, even if it was not their specialty. For example, when one, uh, again, an old school movie fan, cineast, film buff, thinks of Howard Hawks, who directed, for example, the original Scarface in 1931 with Paul Muni. I could say with Paul Muni in the Al Pacino role, but it would be more accurate to say that Al Pacino, 52 years later, played the Paul Muni role. But Howard Hawks directed one of the great Westerns that I love and certainly would be in my top five all time, Red River, which was an incredible pairing of John Wayne and Montgomery Clift. And I'm not going to like go into plot description of every film that I might mention, but Red River is it's the best of those kinds of westerns cattle barons land drives um land fights land grabs it's a really great movie with two incredible all-time stars going head to head and really it's very difficult for anybody to hold their own against john wayne wayne as Clint Eastwood later, and people like Harrison Ford and others. When John Wayne was on screen, he's all you saw. He had, he wasn't necessarily that great of an actor. I would argue that Clint Eastwood was a far more versatile performer than Wayne. I I don't even think it's close. 
but Wayne commanded the screen like few others. And in Red River, he has moments of incredible focus and concentration where you feel it. You feel it. He doesn't come across like an actor delivering lines. He's John Wayne. But that Red River would be my favorite John Wayne Western next to The Searchers by John Ford, another extraordinary filmmaker and a guy that kind of gave Steven Spielberg, if you believe the true story that Spielberg tells in the movie The Fablemans, it kind of gave Spielberg the kick in the ass that he needed at the very beginning when he was just getting going. And John Ford gave him some not really fatherly advice, unless it was a father who was going to beat the crap out of you. Um, but John Ford, and many people to this day will consider The Searchers, that's the movie I'm, I'm referencing here, to be the greatest Western ever made. And I have seen it. It's a long movie. It's a bit of a difficult watch because John Wayne, his character is a racist. He is a piece of crap. But he's a piece of crap who has a conscience in a bizarre way, a very strange conscience. And the, why the movie works so well, in a nutshell, uh, John Wayne is a Confederate war hero. He's fighting for the wrong side. Hello. Not a great guy. But he is, and then the movie goes to great pains to show that he's not a great guy. He has an issue with the fact that his nephew is, as he would say, he's Comanche. You know, he's part Native American. Oh my God. Oh, what a horrible thing, right? But the, the gist of the story is that John Wayne's character returns home after grueling battle, presumably after the Civil War. And the family farm is basically torched, beset upon, and his niece, whose name is Debbie, uh, is, is taken. You know, like Liam Neeson, taken, I will find you, I will kill you, in, you know, the 1870 version of, fuck you, if you don't give her back, I'll find you and I'll kill you. That's John Wayne instead of Liam Neeson. So he and his nephew, played by the terrific and unfortunately ill-fated Jeffrey Hunter, who many Star Trek fans recognize the name, he was the original Captain Pike, uh, in Star Trek before Captain Kirk when they really this, uh, the network wasn't sure what they were going to do with it but the pilot was uh, the cage the menagerie Jeffrey Hunter many years like probably seven or eight years after The Searchers Jeffrey Hunter is John Wayne's co-star in The Searchers and he is essentially the conscience of the film and what the movie does that to me is so extraordinary is that Say what you will about John Wayne, his lack of range, but this film makes you believe at a certain point in the film that John Wayne is no longer trying to search and rescue his niece, but in his estimation, and he sort of more than hints at this, she has been with them for long enough where she is one of them, and as such, when they find her, he's not going to rescue her, he is going to kill her. And you'd be surprised how much tension builds over the idea that is this John Wayne, this Mr. American Patriot, this rah-rah pro-America, he's just going to murder his niece because she was kidnapped by people he doesn't like? The movie really gets under the skin. And Wayne has moments where he holds a close-up. I can't describe it in a way that will make sense. But Wayne, it's like generations of pain 
and anger and hurt are coming across in John Wayne's gaze. And it is, I believe, the best film acting he ever did is this movie, The Searchers, because he makes you feel his character's pain, his bigotry, his hatred for so many different people. Without spoiling it, it wouldn't be, it would not be an all-time classic movie if he simply murdered his niece. That's not a movie. Like, I mean, I guess it could be a movie, but it's so good and so riveting, and it is the kind of movie you wouldn't think that it would have the rewatchability factor, but it does, and I absolutely love it, and it, as I say, it is in my top five all-time westerns, and similar to Red River, not all of these all-time greats are... Um, free on streaming. Many of them are. Red River, I'm not sure about, but it might be streaming on Tubi or, you know, those kind of secondary channels which have, you know, our ad-supported format. Um, same with The Searchers. It, you, you know, you can rent it on Amazon Prime for two bucks and Apple Plus, same thing. That I know for 100% certain. But those are two of my five favorite movies and um, both with John Wayne. And certainly in the case of Red River, because Montgomery Clift, another unfortunately ill-fated, it's really tragic, another tragic, you know, Hollywood end, if you will, Montgomery Clift. Jeffrey Hunter, unfortunately, died of cancer. Uh, he wasn't very old. But those are two of my five, and I don't like to rank them in order, because even that's something that'll change. But both of those movies, all-time great directors, many people would certainly have Howard Hawks and John Ford in an unofficial top ten of, you know, greatest American filmmakers for sure. Um, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, Clint Eastwood, who next to John Wayne is the greatest Western star in the history of motion pictures, whether it's America, whether it's Italy, whether it's, it doesn't matter. Uh, Clint was the man, as you know, as everyone knows. And Sergio Leone, who was one of Clint's two filmmaking mentors, the other one being the late, great Don Siegel, who did a Western with Clint, an urban Western called Coogan's Bluff, and then he did Dirty Harry and other fantastic films with Clint, The Beguiled, Escape from Alcatraz, Two Meals for Sister Sarah, and then he worked on Play Misty for me with Clint. That was Clint's directorial debut. Um, but The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly... I can argue is the single greatest Western in the history of cinema. It's absolutely in the conversation. And there are certain films that, quote-unquote, everybody respects and everybody will put in a certain category. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is one of those films. It's an incredible Western. The locations, the staging, the fact that Leone shot the film in Italy, and if you didn't know, you might actually think you were looking at the American West, which is fucking crazy. But The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is a film where the title is almost absurd because you could argue that Clint Eastwood, as the good, he's just as bad as the other guys. He's not good, he's good, but you put it in quotes, like that kind of thing. But it is a movie about where there is a civil war, like there are, are huge, large-scale battle scenes, which for the time were incredibly well shot and well orchestrated by, you know, the filmmaker Sergio Leone, who I, I always point this out, but for those who don't know, it bears repeating. Anytime Quentin Tarantino is asked to name either favorite filmmaker or filmmakers or a filmmaker that he took ideas for shots from, he always mentions Sergio Leone. Leone is, I believe, Tarantino would say, his favorite filmmaker of all time. And The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, 
without going into spoiler territory, it ends with a Mexican standoff, which I don't know why it's called a Mexican standoff, but it, it, it implies a situation in which there is no chance for success. For example, if you have 10 people all pointing guns and each person is pointing a gun at a direction of someone else and they're all going to shoot, that's a Mexican standoff. It implies a life and death scenario where there's no way to win. There's no way to win. Now, in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, no spoilers, Clint's character, because it's Clint, even early Clint, he was in his early 30s at the time, and he was not, he was a star, but he was on the rise. He had already done the first, uh, excuse me, the first two dollars of the Dollars Trilogy, um, A Fistful of Dollars, and for a few dollars more. So he was the star. But Clint's character figures out it's almost like a Kobayashi Maru. If you again, you want to talk Star Trek, um, the Kobayashi Maru is a so-called no-win situation, a test of character. What will you do when death is certain and you can't escape? How will you handle it? A Mexican standoff is a Kobayashi Maru, but Clint's character, similar to James Tiberius Kirk, who figured out how to beat the no-win scenario essentially by cheating, Clint has the same solution long before Admiral Kirk or Captain Kirk did, where he figures out a way that he is almost guaranteed to not die and guaranteed to succeed in his quest, which in, in the case of this movie, although there are the scenes of the Civil War and there's some you know stuff with, with families and struggles and, and whatnot, um, it's about gold. It's all about gold. It's about three men, the good, that's Clint, the bad, Lee Van Cleef, phenomenal. He was in Escape from New York 15 years later with Kurt Russell. And Eli Wallach, a great old actor, an old friend of Clint. And Wallach was in his 90s when he passed, about 2015-ish. But all three guys, the good, the bad, and the ugly, are looking for gold. But the twist of the story, which isn't really a twist, is that each guy has one component of the puzzle of where the fuck is this gold? So, like, if you know somebody has gold somebody buried the gold. One of the three guys knows the name of the cemetery. One of the guys knows the name on the grave. And the other guy knows where, because the cemetery is so huge, you're never going to find it, knows where in the cemetery that particular gravesite is. So that's how these three men, who would pretty much just as soon kill one another, more so Lee Van Cleef's character is ruthless. Uh, that's how they end up working together for the common gold of, I think it's 200 common gold, common goal of 200, I think it's $200,000 worth of gold or maybe more. But again, think about how much that is inflation adjusted. It's a disgusting amount of money. That's an extraordinary film. And then Sergio Leone made another of my favorite in my top five greatest Westerns ever made once upon a time in the West, his final large-scale epic Western. Now, his original conception, and all of this stuff you can Google, just in case I'm just making shit up, right? It's possible with Google, you can you can kind of double-check, make sure that I'm, I'm giving you the straight scoop here. But Leone originally wanted Clint to come back, and Clint played a character that he would sometimes get names, as dumb as that sounds, in the movies. But in general, he's known as the man with no name. And he wanted Clint to come back for what became Once Upon a Time in the West. And Clint was, he was busy. He was working on Coogan's Glove, uh, Coogan's Glove, Coogan's Bluff with Don Siegel, and they had other projects. So Clint was not able to 
do Once Upon a Time in the West. And Leone, who loved the script, and one of the people involved in the writing of the screenplay, is a great, one of the great horror filmmakers ever, um, Dario Argento, who did the original Suspiria, Terror at the Opera, Deep Red, among others. Just a phenomenal, and a great writer on top of that. And obviously, in this case, he wasn't writing horror, he was writing Western. Without being able to get Clint for the lead, Sergio Leone decided to roll the dice and do something bonkers that if he did not, if he was not Sergio Leone, would not have been able to do it. But because he had this reputation, and, and he was a guy everybody respected his his craft and his artistry, and he wasn't crazy. He was not a difficult director as far as, oh God, he's like, this was not a renegade overspending just wackadoo kind of, okay, he's crazy, let's just leave him alone and hope he turns out a good film. He was very well respected. Everybody knew this guy's got the chops. He's putting shots together we've never seen. Like, his talent was very, very much, you know, in high esteem. So when he couldn't get Clint, he decided to go bonkers and put the casting, as my dad would say, back word. He had Henry Fonda and Charles Bronson as his principals. Now, what you would expect, because Henry Fonda pretty much only played humble good guys. We're talking about 12 Angry Men. We're talking about the Grapes of Wrath. Henry Fonda played decent people. Even my darling Clementine replaced Wyatt Earp. He has a moral center. He is a kind and decent sheriff. Charles Bronson often played heavies. He looked like a dangerous guy. Well, Sergio Leone decided, fuck that. Let's do something different. What do you say if we cast Charles Bronson as the hero and we will make Papa Fonda the most dastardly, disgusting villain in all of Western cinema? That's what they did. And when I tell you Papa Fonda fucking kills it, Papa Fonda fucking kills it. He is amazing as a kind of brilliant, he's not just a random killing machine, but he is extraordinary. And Henry Fonda told a story. He didn't understand why. Uh, he was interested. He had been told that he didn't, he knew of Sergio Leone at the time that he was approached, hey, would you like to star and be a bad guy for, for Leone? And he, he watched some of Sergio's films, you know, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. He said, okay, I definitely want to work with this guy. This guy is brilliant. But he didn't understand why. Leone wanted him to play the villain. And, like, what was the thought process? And he didn't get it until they started to shoot the opening scene, which is a scene of a mass killing. And Fonda tells the story. He said, it's this horrible scene, and you see these kind of nameless, faceless assassins just murdering an entire family. It's terrible. And then after this horrendous death and violence you pan up and it's me meaning Henry Fonda and the entire audience all at once is thinking the same thing Jesus Christ it's Henry Fonda and when Fonda told that story the audience it was the Mike Douglas show cracked up laughing but that's exactly right if you walk into that movie not knowing who's who and who's what if you just look at the cast list you're not thinking anything like that. And the fact that Henry Fonda is doing that, holy shit. 
and that's why he was cast. He said, Leone casted me just for that one moment when everyone's going to say, holy shit, or whatever you're going to say, it's Henry Fonda. So Charles Bronson as the nominal hero, and there's like, it's a vengeance story, and you're not really sure exactly what's going on, but Bronson's character wants at Henry Fonda's character as Frank, and Bronson is basically playing the man with the uh, man with no name, but in this movie, he has a harmonica, so instead of man with no name, he's known as man with a harmonica. And it is just an unbelievable, incredible film, epic, about the building of the railroads. You know, it's a kind of piece of American history that, as a younger person, I never thought about. You know, how long did it take to build transcontinental railroads? I don't know. But this movie gets into that, you know, railroad... CEOs of what would that entail in 1870 or whatever the hell time period we're talking about. But incredible gunfights. Close-ups, what Sergio was famous for, those incredible holding of close-ups. And he gets the best performance of Bronson's career for 100% certain. The man barely speaks. He makes Clint Eastwood seem like Lawrence Olivier with the, you know, with the big speeches. And Clint didn't give any speeches. But Bronson, it's a three-hour movie. He has, maybe he's got 10 lines of dialogue, maybe 15. He doesn't have to talk. He acts with his eyes. He acts with his body. He acts with his movements. And he's, as Henry Fonda said, he's marvelous. Bronson is marvelous. Claudia Cardinal is terrific. And it's sort of a, almost seems like a throwaway. It's a great role. Jason Robards Jr., who was active well through the 1990s, was still making movies. Tom Cruise, Magnolia. Tom Cruise, I believe, plays his son. So 30-plus years later, Jason Robards Jr. was still acting. He's great. He plays Cheyenne. And the music by Ennio Morricone. He did the, that famous... In Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Musical score is just as great in Once Upon a Time in the West. Now, my fifth and final great Western. And when I give you these, these five Westerns, I would also say... For those of you who are not that familiar with the genre or haven't seen too many, you know, maybe you saw the Coen Brothers reboot of, of True Grit, you know, with Jeff Bridges and Matt Damon a number of years ago, um, or Hell or High Water, another one with Jeff Bridges from a number of years ago, and, and Chris Pine and Ben Foster. That's also very, very solid. But these five movies, I can tell you they're my favorites, but they're a good sort of primer if you really haven't seen any classic westerns, these are a great starting point to kind of understand the magic, not just the allure, but the magic of the western genre when it's done right and how great a movie in this genre can be, especially when they have the budget to get the time period and get the feel and they're taking it very seriously. So that again, that's my editorial kind of disclaimer that if you're going to look at the genre in terms of I, there are certain essential films that I should see these are the movies that you should start with because I could give you Heaven's Gate I could give you The Long Riders I could give you Ride the High Country with you know Bloody Sam Peckinpah that's a terrific movie there are so many fantastic westerns and even Ron Howard about 20 years ago The Missing I thought was very underrated uh, Bone Tomahawk with Kurt Russell from a number of years ago very underrated but these five and the fifth one, it's kind of fitting that this is the last one that I'm going to talk about specifically because it is Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, which had a very long history 
before it was even there was even a chance that it was going to be produced, but not for the typical reason. Like I remember the story of Forrest Gump, and some of you might know Forrest Gump. Every major studio passed on Forrest Gump twice before they finally made the film. Bob Zemeckis and uh, you know Tom Hanks, Robin Wright, Gary Sinise, but everybody had a crack at it, and everybody, including the studio that ended up making it, pass, 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 pass. The case of Unforgiven is a little bit more straightforward and puzzling unless you obviously know the in-depth stuff. Clint Eastwood, in the mid-1970s, purchased a screenplay by a fantastic writer, David Webb Peoples. He was one of the writers on Blade Runner, of all things. You know, Western and sci-fi, but Blade Runner is sci-fi. David Webb Peoples wrote a screenplay uh, called The William Money Killings, which Clint Eastwood read when he was, meaning Clint, in his mid-40s. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. And said, this is going to be great. This is almost an anti-Western. It's in the genre, but it's doing things that the typical Westerns, you know, even the ones that he had done, even as late as High Plains Drifter, which in a way is a little bit of an anti-Western because the hero is just as bad as the villains, if not worse. I mean, if you want to make that argument, he's terrible. But this was different. And Clint instinctively knew this is a special script, but I can't play this part. I'm not old enough. And, and I, yeah, he didn't want to do a thing where he was going to, in his 40s, try to make himself look 60 with makeup. He said, there'll be a time I'll be able to make this movie. This isn't the time. So he went about the rest of his career in the 70s. He did the gauntlet. He did Escape from Alcatraz and then into the 80s with Honky Tonk Man, Bronco Billy and Firefox and City Heat and Tightrope and he did all these movies many of which were very successful yeah, some of them really weren't that great but he always had it in the back of his head like when he did Pale Rider in the mid 80s it's essentially Pale Rider is a remake of Shane I mean I guess Clint, the production company could have gotten sued for plagiarism that's how close it is to Shane but even at that point Clint wasn't ready to dust off the William Money killings just wasn't ready so he continued to work he did Heartbreak Ridge that's the only movie he made while serving as one-term mayor of Carmel, California, his adopted hometown, of course. And he continued to work. He did Bird, the movie about Charlie Parker, where he directed Forrest Whitaker, got a lot of acclaim, didn't make much money. White Hunter, Black Heart, another really solid film, which completely bombed at the box office. Pink Cadillac bombed. The Rookie with Charlie Sheen, fun movie, also bombed. The last Dirty Harry film, The Deadpool, 1988, underperformed. So Clint's career, and I talked about this in a previous podcast, his career, it's not that it hit the skids. He just wasn't connecting with audiences because he made a lot of movies in the 70s that you could argue were really not that good, but they turned a profit. They all turned a profit. And then suddenly, the kinds of movies that were turning a profit for him, you know, the Iger Sanction, a lot of people in the mid-70s weren't that excited, had some incredible mountain climbing footage, turned a profit. He reached a point after the kind of failure, the, the twin-pronged failure, because 1990 should have been a great year for Clint, because he had the action movie with the rookie, which most people would have said, well, this is a slam dunk box office hit. You have Clint, it's a cop thriller, and Charlie Sheen, young guy, was still seemingly on the rise back in 1990. And he had White Hunter Blackheart earlier that year, where he was essentially playing John Huston, the filmmaker, during the making of The African Queen. And it's a really good movie, but it just, there were some critics that had it on their, you know, 10 best list. That was the year of Goodfellas, uh, Dances with Wolves. 
Reversal of Fortune. Many people had White Hunter Blackheart in their top 10 movies of the year. And there was chatter, well, maybe Clint will get nominated for director, but the film, nobody saw it. And it really didn't, I don't think it got any Oscar nominations, despite certain critics saying, this is one of the best films of Clint's career. What's wrong with everybody? So that was when he decided he was 60, 61. It's time to dust off the William Money killings and make this movie. This is the time. And I don't know if, I assume part of it was because his career had kind of skidded and that Warner Brothers was not, they weren't as easy to work with as far as they weren't going to fund just anything that he brought before them. But this was something that they were on board with because the powers that be had always loved the script. And I don't know if they had been nudging him throughout the 80s, you know, maybe you should do that, William Money, because that part I don't know. So there's a lot of stuff that took place in the decades like the 80s and 90s, which we're never going to know because they weren't recorded. Nobody posted it on Twitter. We don't know. Nothing went viral. We just have to suppose. What we know for sure is that Clint was able to secure the budget from, because he had his own production company, Malpaso, Malpaso Productions, which is, again, Clint, on top of everything else, was one of the first big stars to take full control of his career, and he had his own production shingle on the Warner Brothers lot, which, as I say, was Malpaso Productions. That was the name of the company. So he, he was able to secure the necessary financing, and one thing that Warner knew, Clint Eastwood, every single film Produced and or directed under the imprimatur, the banner of Malpaso Productions. Every single movie had to this day has come in on time and under budget. You want to talk about a record that's never going to be broken. That's it. What a fucking legend. Anyway, beside the point. He secured the budget and he went about getting together his cast. And because he was Clint Eastwood, he was able to get everybody he wanted for every part part of the sheriff, he goes for Gene Hackman, and Hackman can't say yes fast enough. Part for, for Clint's writing partner, Ned, he approaches, or his people approach Morgan Freeman, Morgan can't sign quickly enough. The part of English Bob, the kind of key supporting role, he says, I, I really would love to get Richard Harris, or Sir Richard Harris. Richard Harris, oh my God, I can't wait to work with Clint. And Francis Fisher, who was the kind of the key role of the prostitute, uh, one of the prostitutes, that, that was Clint's real life, you know, partner, fiance at the time. So he got her and she's great in that movie. Frances Fisher, if you don't know the name, she plays Rose's mom in Titanic several years later. So as the William Money Killings went into production, and I, I realize this is more long-winded than the other ones, but it's always for a purpose because this movie is worthy of more time. It might be the greatest Western ever made. And also, I have an affinity for Clint. He's my favorite person to ever work in the movie business. And it is crazy how this all worked out. So sometime before production, it was decided that the William Money Killings, not going to work as a title. Not going to work. And I don't know whether it was Clint or another person or David Webb Peoples, the writer, or someone else on the production. But somebody came up with the title of Unforgiven. And Clint shot the film mostly in, uh, I believe, British Columbia, if I'm not mistaken, like Alberta. And they shot it pretty quickly. He was very careful with things like not wanting the seams to show. He made sure that uh, all the actors walked at least the last quarter of a mile to the set so there were no tire tracks where people could say, oh, look at this, there's a limo. Yeah, that, you know, in other words, he didn't want anything to break the fiction. 
It's a beautiful film. It's gorgeously shot, really well acted. You know, and Clint still had the clout. Uh, James Woolbit, who plays um, Schofield Kid in the movie, is uh, they the studio wanted him to. The studio wanted Clint to cast. I don't want to say uh, another Charlie Sheen type, but they wanted him to cast a rising star. Like it could have been a Brad Pitt. They didn't necessarily mention Pitt by name, but Clint wanted an actor that no one knew to play the key role of the Schofield kid. So he found this James Wolvet, who is really, really good in this role. So the movie gets shot. Clint gets everything together. And then as I talked about in a previous podcast about Clint's comeback, when he arranges the film, when he gets it together, the studio heads at Warner go berserk because they know this time they're confident that when they say, we think Clint had it, hit it out of the park, he did. And they were right. And so the movie came out and it was, a for the time, a very significant box office success. And again, this is 30, 32 summers ago. To make $100 million for this kind of period piece with an actor who was thought to be over the hill, literally, figuratively, symbolically, it made over $100 million in its initial run at the box office, nominated for a shit ton of Oscars, and ended up winning four, including the two big ones, Best Picture and Best Director. And it is, it didn't win those awards by accident. It is a movie that, despite the kind of somber and heavy subject matter, it has immense rewatchability factor because of the strength of the performances, because of just how beautifully shot it is. You know, a Clint cinematographer, Jack N. Green, I think he was nominated for Best Cinematography, but his work is up there with the best of guys like Michael Chapman and um, Owen Roisman and some of the other great cinematographers, um, you know, of the day. The, uh, was it Robert Richardson? It's as good as anyone the way he was able to capture the landscapes. So many shots in Unforgiven look like paintings, look like just beautiful, um, I guess you could say Renaissance paintings even. But the film was a huge success, and yeah, Clint got the accolades, and it jump-started, you know, the kind of second second phase, if you will, of his career, the great, incredible second second half of his career. And today, it is generally regarded that you're, you're not going to find too many of people who like the genre when they say, give me your top 10. The five movies I named here today are going to be on a lot of lists, but Unforgiven, I think, would appear on an uh, unofficial top 10 list more than the other four, maybe because it's newer. You know, I, I just graduated high school when it came out in 1992. But Unforgiven, I believe, is streaming on Max, if I'm not mistaken. Many, not surprisingly, Clint Eastwood films are on Max because of the connection to Warner, to Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers Discovery, you know, that that's the whole thing with, with Max and, and the CEO David Zaslav. So I believe Unforgiven is on Max. I don't know about the good, the bad, and the ugly. I feel like that might be on uh, Amazon Prime. Again, you might have to rent it. But the five westerns I named for you, Red River, The Searchers, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, Once Upon a Time in the West, and Unforgiven. They are five almost undisputed classics of the form of one of the most enduring, if not the most enduring genres in the history of cinema. Hey, one of the first movies ever, Great Train Robbery, Edwin S. Porter, 1903. It's a fucking Western. What do you think it is? They're robbing a goddamn stagecoach. Excuse my French. 
So it is a genre that has been around since literally the advent of cinema more than 120 years ago, the Western. And with that, I'm almost home. We have reached the end of episode 66, 66, route 66 of the Confessions of a Not-So-Dangerous Mind podcast. I'd like to thank you all for joining me on this ride home in this reverie through some of the greatest Westerns ever made. Not, not just my favorites, but some of the greatest. Um, if you've checked out episode 66 on the YouTube channel and haven't done so already and you enjoyed the content, click like, subscribe, and turn on those notifications. Or if you're in the car catching up, listening to episode 66 on Spotify, iTunes, or the other platforms, same rule applies. If you like it, don't forget to click like, subscribe, and turn on the notifications. Now, I'll be back in the studio for episode 67 real soon. Peace out.